Hey, everybody. So we have Dr. Nadir Ali with us today. He's an interventional cardiologist, an avid cyclist, and the team doctor for his cycling team. And he's got some controversial views on lipidology that we're going to go over today and cholesterol. And so uh, welcome to the show, Nadir. Uh, thank you, Dave. I'm very happy to be here today. And uh, for today, the donation I'm going to be making for charity is going to go towards Operation Smile. Uh, Dr. Nadir Ali agreed that that would be a good one for today, so thanks for that. Oh, not at all. Good work that you're doing. <laughs> so, so just to give people a brief primer here, um, how did you get into this? You know, I know, obviously, you're a cardiologist, but a lot of cardiologists don't have your knowledge on lipidology. So how did you really get interested there? So uh, I think that just before we talked, we were talking as to how early you are starting in this field, and I envy you because you're only 26, and I have been an interventional cardiologist for 28 years, wow. and I've gotten into this only in the last five years. I, had, I wish I had done it earlier, but the way my life started is that I became a very good interventional cardiologist. I could open up somebody's blood vessel if they were coming in with a heart attack or they had a blockage better than most people who do this. And so I spent the bulk of my time working in the cardiac cath lab and I didn't want to practice any preventive cardiology because I thought it doesn't work. And the reason I thought it doesn't didn't work is because there is a medicalization of the physician profession because when you go to a physician, they think about, hey, what pill can I do give you to make you feel better? And I was very disappointed with that approach because I knew none of the pills work. They make people sicker. They make them not feel good. And it doesn't treat their blood pressure. It doesn't treat their cholesterol properly. It doesn't treat their diabetes. It doesn't even treat their gastric reflux or acid reflux. So I told my colleagues, I'll just be in the cardiac cath lab where I will fix people with blockages. You take care of all the patients in the office that will come and visit us afterwards. But as I was getting older, I said, hey, I need to withdraw a little bit from the cardiac cath lab and focus on doing something else. And it so happened that, you know, I started, I picked up cycling, and I had gained up to 180 pounds. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm 150 pounds now, but so I started cycling. I went down to 170, 165, but I could never get to the ideal body weight despite starving myself so that I could be competitive with my racing team. Uh, you know, you don't want to racing team and be a physician for the racing team and not keep up with them. Sure. So I don't know if you remember, no, but 2013 Tour de France, um, the Chris Froome was absolutely blowing away the competition. Mm. And if you read about him at that time, there were some reports that he was a low-carb athlete. Okay. And then I started looking into some of the podcasts, and that's about the time when uh, people were talking about this in Australia. And I remember listening to a podcast by Zeeshan Arian, uh, and 
his podcast was not very clear the slides were not the best but what he said was making absolute sense to me as a physician and i said why have i not ever tried this and the concepts of insulin resistance which we can get into would mm-hmm. uh, be important to say how that makes sense and when i started trying that within 6 months i was down to 150 pounds without really having to put much effort cool i didn't feel like i was denying myself anything and i said if it works for me why should i not try it in my patients sure and that's when this gratifying journey started because when i started trying in my patients i saw all these great reserves um their blood pressure was getting better they were losing weight their diabetes was getting better their cholesterol quality was getting better which we can elaborate a little bit more mm-hmm. um but that is in a, in a in a long sense a story of how i arrived at this point okay cool um and so i have you know some experience trying ketogenic diets in the past um first in high school and then in college and then just recently um and for various reasons and so recently i tried it and it seemed to provide some gi benefits for me um but i wasn't i wanted to talk to you about and have you kind of take a guess as to what happened with my blood work so i had a very extensive lipid panel done beforehand and afterwards and along with some other markers and so given your experience i'd like to see what you think happened to my hdl my ldl hba1c inflammatory markers you know what do you think i would have seen there yeah game on i i will try <laughs> to guess <laughs> so yeah let i would say uh, can i can i ask you before you started how tall are you and what did you weigh and after you started what happened to your weight and sure so i your, your waist size so i'm 61 um doing the experiment about 195 pounds and um what else did you ask you said oh like how much weight didn't change so i kept calories pretty much at maintenance um there was of course you know a few pounds of water weight loss um but i because i specifically wanted to test what would happen from keto without a caloric deficit um mm-hmm. i tried to keep calories pretty much at maintenance okay uh, was there any change in your waist size your pant size um n- not much you know maybe like not a quarter much. inch but not really not much that you could notice okay So I would say if you went on a true ketogenic diet that your hemoglobin A1c should drop quite a bit. I would say at least by about uh 0.5 points. So like if it was 5.6 it should cover around 5.1 or so. Um now you if you had high triglycerides I would say your triglycerides would improve if you had high uh, if you had your high density cholesterol hdl that should go up i would predict that your ldl would go up rather than go down but mm-hmm. the quality of the ldl in other words the size of the ldl particles will change will increase to the large and fluffy kind was there any other biomarker that you looked at um i looked at hscrp and mm-hmm. esr Mm-hmm. Um I did look at other ones but those other mm-hmm. ones I looked at didn't change too much so those were the most significant ones. I would predict that your uh, HSCRP which is the C-reactive protein should mm-hmm. go down that your erythrocyte sedimentation rate which is ESR should normalize. So okay. I don't know so let's see what 
how how on target I was. So pretty spot on. So HbA1c was already. I mean, so you know, being um, athletic and all that, most of these values were already good to begin with. But HbA1c went from 5.2 to 4.9. ESR went from nine to two. Um, so those both did decrease. Um, HDL went up about from about 69 to 82. So wow. there was an improvement there. Um, what else we say? Total cholesterol shot up a lot. So from about mm-hmm. 200 to about 340. And LDL, most of that, you know, pretty much entirely came from LDL. So LDL went from about, I think it was about 120 to about a little over 200. Uh, so Good LDL effect. did skyrocket. You, you fall in the category of what um, Dave Feldman talks about, and I see that a lot in my practice, which is called lean mass hyper responders. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you are transporting your energy predominantly as fat in the bloodstream. So if I can elaborate that a little bit more, uh, triglycerides is fat, and so is cholesterol. So if you need to transport triglycerides in the bloodstream, you cannot transport it in the bloodstream without making an LDL particle. So the way I would describe that is that the liver is trying to put out triglycerides into the circulation. And in order to do that, it has to package them in a lipoprotein molecule so that they will dissolve in blood. Triglycerides is fat and our blood is watery. So if you put, take a beaker of water and try to put oil in it, it does not mix. And similarly, triglycerides will not mix in our blood without being packaged into an LDL particle. So the liver is putting out a lot more of these LDL particles to transport energy in your bloodstream. And that's the reason why your LDL is skyrocketing because you're using a lot of fat energy. You're not using carbohydrate energy because you're on a low-carb diet. Mm -hmm. So that's why the LDL goes way up and the LDL gets depleted of the triglycerides because your body takes the triglycerides from the LDL and uses it. And what you're left with is cholesterol inside the LDL molecule and that's why your numbers go up. Mm-hmm. So I simplified the description a little bit because I, on purpose, omitted one step. The triglyceride-rich particle that the liver puts out is called very low-density lipoprotein, or VLDL. And once it drops off the triglycerides to the exercising muscles and other cells, it then transforms into an LDL. hmm so that is for somebody who is trying to keep score and saying, hey, I, I was not precise in my description. Um, but for simplicity's sake, one should presume that the reason the LDL goes up in lean mass hyperresponders is because they are transporting a lot of fat energy in the bloodstream. And that fat energy is being transported in the LDL particles. All right. And now you had mentioned, you know, typically the LDL, it's what we, people call the big fluffy LDL. Um, what do you notice in terms of LDL particle and small dense LDL? 
So um, most people who go through a transform uh, transformation like you, their LDL particle becomes larger in size. So the larger fluffy LDL particle is considered to be sort of a benign uh, lipoprotein that does not cause vascular disease. Whereas the small and dense lipoprotein, which is the smaller size of the LDL, is considered to be more atherogenic, so to speak. And um, I guess there are some clinical studies. There is a trial called the MESA trial that has looked at it in some detail. I'm not sure that we should get hung up on particle size that much. Hmm. I think that if you are looking at a lipoprotein profile, a cholesterol profile, I think the best way, should, best way to measure the quality of the LDL, I mean, so the quality of uh, your cholesterol is to see that your triglycerides are low, which is basically fat and blood, that your HDL is high, and contrary to what every other cardiologist will tell you, I think that a high LDL is a marker of health. It is something to be celebrated and not to get concerned about because there are a lot of benefits of high LDL in the right setting, a setting like yours, which is mm -hmm. your HDL is high, your triglycerides are low, your triglycerides to HDL ratio is less than two. If you put together the LDL number and the LDL number, so in other words, you're adding the LDL plus the HDL, and then you're subtracting that from your total cholesterol. If that number is less than 15, that's a very good marker because that means that you have very small amounts of triglycerides or fat energy in your bloodstream. As soon as you have fat energy in the bloodstream, you're using it. So keeping fat energy in the bloodstream low is a marker of good health, is a marker of good metabolism. Okay. Yeah, because it is interesting because pretty much every other, you know, even by what's traditionally recommended, every other marker improved for me except for that LDL. And the reason I brought up particle size is because um, at least the research I've seen shows that all the, you know, when you correlate small, yeah, small, dense LDL with mortality, you know, basically they say the higher it is, the worse. And um, for me, my small, dense LDL tripled from the ketogenic diet. And so I, that's the one thing I didn't expect. I did expect my LDL to go up, but I didn't expect my small, dense LDL to dramatically increase like that. And so that kind of left me a little unsure about it to go from there. Well, and that's the tragedy out there. You should be celebrating your elevation in your LDL, and yet the medical science right now and the medical profession tells you you need to be concerned about it, you need to worry about it. And almost nobody uh, looks at the LDL molecule from the standpoint of why is it that the body makes the LDL in the first place? Mm -hmm. Because if you speak to a cardiologist, they will say, all LDL is bad, and the lower your LDL is, the better it is. But I think that is a fallacy. Uh, 
it's a fallacy born out of a lot of clinical observations. Uh, you can go to uh, base. You can go and do some basic science work in rats in the animal models and show that high LDL is actually beneficial from several standpoints. And then you can take a look at uh, work done in the elderly that shows that high LDL reduces the risks of cancer, strokes, and people having high LDL are smarter, have better memory skills, better cognition. Uh, these are things that are not to be just overlooked and brushed aside because we are living in a paradigm that says LDL causes heart disease and health driving it down is the right thing to do. So where do you think that paradigm comes from then? Because I mean, obviously, you know, we have the American Heart Association recommending only five to 7% of your total calories come from saturated fat and all these cardiologists recommending lower LDL levels that, that comes from somewhere. So why do you think you and the rest of them have such a different paradigm on that? So um, I think for a minute we should not talk about how this hypothesis, the diet-heart hypothesis came about. Um, we could spend the entire hour talking about it and say how wrong it is and, yeah. and, and how poor, poor the science is behind which it is based. But uh, let us suspend that for a minute and maybe we can come back to it. But let's look at the data that shows that LDL is good, okay. very briefly. So you take a 50,000 patient study called the HUNT-2 trial, and I think I send you a link to that. Uh, and these patients were followed for 10 years. And if you look at total mortality, the higher the cholesterol, the lower the mortality, mm -hmm. especially in women. And in women, if you looked at cardiovascular mortality, higher your total cholesterol, lower the mortality. Now, total cholesterol correlates very good with LDL cholesterol. So when your total cholesterol goes high, so does your LDL cholesterol. So that's what these guys observed. So that is one very robust piece of information. Mm -hmm. Now, second thing is that I want to take you back to a couple of observational studies that are highly significant. Let's take the one that was done in Edinburgh, England, uh, or Scotland rather, and they took about a thousand, co a thousand people. Now, this was a cohort. People born in the early 1900s, they went through a mental status examination at age 11, and when they were about 70 years in early 2000s, they were brought back for a repeat mental status examination, examining their cognitive skills, their verbal skills, their IQs. And all of this was correlated with uh, cholesterol levels. So they said, hey, if somebody has very high cholesterol, which is in your range, which is 250 and above, mm -hmm and compare them with middle cholesterol, which is between 200 to 250, and then compare them with people with lower cholesterol, which is less than 200. And then you try to say, hey, who has the best cognitive skills? Who has the best memory recall? Who has the best IQ? And in across all these parameters, the uniform finding 
was that people with higher cholesterol had better verbal ability, better cognitive skills, and better IQ. Mm. And not just that, when you looked at other aspects like high blood pressure, strokes, and heart disease, people with high cholesterol had lower incidences of all of these three factors, lower hypertension, lower stroke risk, and lower uh, risk of cardiac disease. So whenever you are looking at a study that says high LDL is bad, reduce, reducing the LDL is good, you want to stop for a minute and try to reconcile those observations with the observations that I'm pointing out that there is a lot of disagreement. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll cite one other study uh, and then uh, I will pause for a minute to let you recollect your thoughts. And this study was done in the town of Leiden, uh, Netherlands, and they took people who were over age 85. I think they found somewhere in the range of 768 odd people. And they followed these people for 10 years. So 85 and above, following them for 10 years and looking at total cholesterol and different outcomes. So again, they divided them very similarly, 250 and higher as the high cholesterol group, 200 to 250 as the middle cholesterol group and less than 200 as the low cholesterol group. And what they found is very similar to the Lothian birth cohort that I described. Higher cholesterol was associated with lower cancer risks, lower all-cause mortality, and something very important, uh, which I would probably ask you to relate to your personal experience, is that they had a lower risk of infections. If you look at old people, one of the primary reasons they die is because they get pneumonia. Mm. And the rate of pneumonia in people with high cholesterol was much lower than the group with low cholesterol. Now, if I were to ask you and say, hey, ever since you went on this low-carb diet and your cholesterol has shot up into the 300s, have you noticed a reduction in the common colds, the respiratory infections, the minor infections that you used to get? And in all likelihood, you would say, yes, I have observed that. And I I don't know whether it would be an anecdotal truth in you, but I can tell you that is my personal observation also. I think for me, it's so right now it's been 10 weeks. So I don't think there's been enough time to really conclude anything. Um, I haven't gotten sick in those 10 weeks, but I also don't tend to get sick very often in general. Um, So it'd be hard for me to, you know, add to that anecdote. I'd say. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I, I can understand that. Yeah. Um, so can you go a little bit more into the role of LDL as far as, you know, what benefits it had or it has on the body? I know there was a, a rat study relating to bacteria quorum sensing um, and, you know, as far as bacteria load, how the LDL helped there. Now, that is fascinating. And I love talking about that. Mm-hmm. So they took a group of rats and they injected them with this uh, bacteria, which is called Staphylococcus aureus. It's just something that causes pneumonia and skin infections. 
And this bacteria is quite amazing because before it starts multiplying in the lungs, it sends out the, these protein molecules. And these protein molecules are just like a pilot that the bacteria are using to see if the environment is favorable for them to multiply and gain foothold for, the, uh, for infection. So that sensing protein it sends out is called quorum sensing. So the protein goes into the lungs and it comes back and gives feedback to the bacteria saying that, yeah, this environment is favorable. Let us multiply and take over the host. And these researchers did an amazing thing. They looked at LDL cholesterol, which we call as the bad cholesterol. And in a series of biochemical experiments, they described and, and showed to us that the LDL cholesterol is the one that neutralizes the scorum-sensing protein. So LDL mops up the scorum-sensing protein, and since it mops it up, the bacteria thinks that, hey, this is not a favorable environment for us to multiply. And so your chances or your risks of getting an infection fall way down. Do you think uh, that I, mechanism is the primary or only mechanism by which the lower carb, higher fat diets help people, you know, get sick less often? I think that uh, the paper also described a few other factors. One of them is called lipopolysaccharide neutralization. Hmm. So what uh, lipopolysaccharide neutralization means is that um, the LDL molecule mops up this protein that the bacteria are releasing that causes inflammation. Inflammation is the primary cause for people falling sick and, uh, and not doing good. And since the, uh, since the um, LDL molecule neutralizes it, that is um, another way in which it would reduce infection and the morbidity, or in other words, the symptoms of infection. I find it interesting because I believe ketogenic diets have been found to lower blood levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha. And yes. yet, and you know, and then we're at the same time discussing how they will help prevent infections. But if you look at the drugs that the TNF blockers, one of the main side effects for them, such as Remicade or Humira, are an increased risk of infection. Um, so say that again, Dave. Uh, I was just a little distracted. Uh, <laughs> redundancy is good. No problem. So I'm, I'm finding it interesting because a ketogenic diet has been found to decrease tumor necrosis factor alpha. And at mm -hmm. the same time, we're saying that it decreases the risk of infection, and at least as far as you've observed. But when you actually mm -hmm. look at drugs like Humira or Remicade that will specifically block TNF, you find that those drugs, uh, you know, a significant side effect is an increased risk of infection. Um, yes, and, and, and that is true. Uh, but I think that uh, there are two different aspects of it. The immunomodulators that are being used for uh, rheumatologic disorders like psoriasis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, do a lot more than dampen down TNF. They affect the immunologic system in a very different way. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think that that is uh, the right 
uh, way to compare these things. In rat studies, we have seen that inflammatory markers do go down in rats that have LDL receptor deficiency. So in other words, there's a group of rats in which the LDL receptor that clears the LDL from circulation is lacking in their liver, and their LDL is five to seven times higher. Wow. And when these uh, rats are given either the lipopolysaccharide, which is an inflammatory molecule that bacteria elaborate, or if they are given bacteria as an inoculation, you find that in both of these conditions, the amount of inflammatory mediators like TNF-alpha and other other inflammatory markers are lower. And um, so uh, I guess the way I would reconcile it is by saying that the immunomodulators that are currently being used do a lot more than just dampen inflammation. They reduce the ability of the host to fight infections and they reduce the ability of the host to fight cancer cells. Right. So there's an increase in cancer risk with these drugs as well. Sure, sure. Um, and, you know, on the topic of medications, obviously a uh, controversial one is statins. And I know you have a different opinion than a lot of other cardiologists. Could you go into that a little bit? So absolutely. Um, I think that the benefits of statins are highly exaggerated. Mm -hmm. And they have a number of side effects. And the way I would first deal with drugs like this is to first say, hey, what do they do that could be harmful? So they have effects on your muscles. They can have effect on your memory. They can increase your long-term cancer risk. Um, they can have damage to your liver. So when you, and also they increase the risks of you becoming a diabetic. So when you look at all of these factors and you say, what are the benefits? And you put the risks and benefits together and you try to understand that these drugs are going to be used by people, not for one year or one month or two years, they're going to be used for three to four decades. Yeah. Like in somebody like you at age 26, you get started on this. And if you have a normal lifespan, which I predict you would, you would be on this drug for 50 years. Right. And the effect of this drug on, for 50 years on your muscles, on your memory, on your nervous system, on your pancreas, this is all something that needs to be taken into consideration. Sure. So there was uh, Dr. Thompson who did a study on healthy people. We are not talking about people who had heart disease. He took about, I think, 600, between 400 and 600 people and put them on these drugs for six months. And then he did two simple things to see whether there was a breakdown of their muscles. Mm -hmm. And there was. Statistically significant breakdown in their muscles within six month period. Then he looked at whether there was damage to the liver and there was biochemical evidence of liver damage within six months. That was statistically significant. And then he looked at the activity counter. He put an activity counter on them and tried to see whether people on statins have reduced activity. 
And what he noticed is that the older you are, the more impact it has on reducing your activity because as you get older, yeah. your muscle mass reduces. So let's try to translate that. That translation is six months and healthy people versus people who have heart disease and who are being given this drug for 40 years. Now tell me which company has actually looked at or which clinical study has actually looked at the damage to your muscles over a 40 year time period on statins? I'm gonna guess not. not. <laughs> right. Then uh, on the contrary, if you truly objectively look at the benefits of statins, you would find that statins help only one group of people. And that group of people are somebody in my age group, in the 50s, so middle-aged men, mm -hmm. who already have either a heart attack or bypass surgery or stents. All right. And you take that group and you say, okay, I'm gonna look at the, the best clinical evidence. So in other words, let's say there are 15 trials that are looking at, all, at a group of people that I just described. And you have to go back to the 1990s when the clinical trials were not as rigorously supervised and you got to give the company that is doing the trial, because these were all trials that were funded by the company. They were run by the pharmaceutical company. The data was gathered by the company. They employed the statisticians. So you got to give them the benefit of doubt saying that they were honest in gathering information, mm -hmm. that they did not exclude somebody having a side effect saying that this person should be excluded for these reasons if they excluded him or her, they excluded them for a right reason. And you say they were above board and this is reliable data. Mm -hmm. And you say, how much benefit is there? Would it shock you to know that the degree of benefit in terms of actually reducing mortality is about 0.5 to 0.6% per year over a five to six year period? So that translates to about a 3% absolute difference. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you hear doctors speak at conferences, when you hear uh, advertising that is there about treatment of statins, they say, this particular statin reduces the risks of cardiovascular mortality by 20 to 30%. They're looking at relative risk, I'm sure. They're looking at relative risk, and I don't know how much your audiences familiar with what relative risk is and what absolute risk is. Uh, and you might care to elaborate them in a different time frame as to what, how this data is inflated and how mm -hmm. the companies try to make their drugs look more appealing than they actually are. Sure. Yeah, I mean, just as a, a clarification, I mean, if you have, you know, one in a thousand and, or, you know, a lottery is a good example. If you have one in a million, and then you, you double your chances, so you have a 100% increased chance, now you're two in a million, it's still not that much of an improvement or it's not that realistic that you're gonna win. And so I guess you're saying similar as far as the benefit of statins. Right. The difference between one in a million and two in a million in relative risk percentage is 100% improvement. So the company could come out and say, we 
improve your chances of winning the lottery by 100%. Mm-hmm. Right, All right. So that's the example that Malcolm Kendrick uses in his book. And it's a beautiful book to read. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you see any shifting? I mean, because I've heard other people talk about this, um, at least a little bit more now than, you know, let's say 10 years ago or before I was ever in this. Um, do you see this changing in the future, or do you think we're just going to be stuck with the current paradigm? Um, the change is not going to come from the medical profession. Um, unfortunately, the medical profession is very deep-rooted and in bed with the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. In addition, the guidelines from the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology dictate that anybody admitted to the hospital with a myocardial infarction or anybody getting a stent should not be discharged from the hospital without a statin. Now, you could argue the merits and demerits of that kind of guideline and how physicians can get a black mark if they don't follow those guidelines. Right. But the reason we are seeing this change is a grassroots effort. I think both nutrition change and change in pharmaceutical agents that we are going to use for heart disease, for diabetes, for peptic for for reflux disease, gastroesophageal reflux disease, is going to be a grassroots effort. And the grassroots effort is going to come from people like you, from several of the low-carb conferences that happen across the world now, a little bit more in the U.S. Um, So that's what you and I are aiming for. Uh, We are aiming to reach the uh, general population, the general public, and give them a different paradigm and make them question all these concepts that are taken for granted by people like me. Sure, sure. And so I like to end these on an actionable step for people. And so if somebody's listened to this or they've heard a little bit about low-carb or ketogenic diets, um, what would your next step for them be if they're kind of curious about the effects, either in terms of how they should implement it or where they should go to get more information? So here I can do some selfless uh, promotion, uh, self-promotion, can I? Or, uh, promotion? Go for it, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. So uh, we are in Houston organizing a low-carb conference. It's called lowcarbhouston.com. So if you put lowcarbhouston.com, you can go and sign up. 20 of the world's top speakers are going to come and give presentations on low-carb diets in relationship to cholesterol, in relationship to diabetes, in relationship to cancer treatments, and many other facets of low-carb diet. There's also going to be a session on intermittent fasting, which is a very powerful tool to improve somebody's health. And uh, I implore your audience to consider going to the lowcarbhouston.com webpage Uh, Sign up for the conference and come to Houston in October. It's a beautiful city in October. The the weather is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, And it's right on the water. Uh, The conference is being organized in such a way that none of the faculty, none of the 20 people who are coming in to give presentations are getting any honorarium or making any money out of it. 
nor are the organizers like me and Bill Amanet from University of Houston, Tier Lake. In addition, if you can't come, there is a live stream button. You can purchase a live stream ticket and watch it all online. Okay. Very cool. Awesome. So, yeah, and um, maybe we'll get you back on at some point to talk about your take on intermittent fasting. That's another controversial topic out there. So I just posted a video, uh, a YouTube video. I have, a, I think I have now YouTube videos on every aspect of low-carb diet. Okay. Uh, whether whether it's intermittent fasting, whether it is insulin resistance, whether it is cholesterol quality, whether it is a carnivorous diet, mm. or whether it is uh, the importance of stomach acid, uh, the the hydrochloric acid that our stomach produces in human health. Sure. So almost every aspect I have covered. So if you Google and put my name, uh, Nadir Ali MD, uh, you would look at all of my YouTube videos on this. Awesome. And is there anywhere else people should go to find your information or is it pretty much just that? Well, there is a Facebook page, Eat Mostly Fats. So you could find us on Eat Mostly Fats on Facebook. And then there is also a website, which is actually not at its level where I want it to be. It's still under construction, which is okay. eatmostlyfat.com. All right. Well, thank you for talking with us today, Dr. Nadir Ali. Thank you again. Hey, Dave. It was a pleasure.